This is Barely Political by the only nonpartisan magazine at UC Berkeley, the Berkeley Political Review. I am your host, Michelle Wong, and will be joining in today's heated discussion on yet another political topic. Let's dive right into the conversation. Today, we're honored to have Dr. Reddy with us. He is an assistant professor of practice at the Information School at UC Berkeley. So, Dr. Reddy, do you want to introduce yourself um, and tell us a bit about what you do? Uh, sure. Thanks, Michelle. Uh, great to be here uh, this afternoon. Um, as you mentioned, I am on the faculty of the Information School, uh, where I teach in the Master's in Cybersecurity program and uh, in the broader Information School. Um, most of my work is kind of focused on uh, emerging technology issues and how they impact national and international security. Uh, most recently, have uh, done a bit of work on various aspects of nuclear command and control, uh, hypersonic missiles, uh, cyber weapons, uh, and various applications of uh, artificial intelligence technologies. Uh, so looking forward to today's discussion. Right. So Dr. Reddy is a perfect interviewee for us today because we're actually discussing the recent Facebook shutdown that happened last Monday. So could you please walk us through what you know of regarding the Facebook shutdown um, related, uh, like, the whole um, shenanigan <laughs> that happened last Monday? Yeah, no problem at all. Yeah, so the, the October 4th Facebook shutdown, I mean, in the in the days since the uh, the shutdown has become clear, at least if you're... If you're you know, if you if you're believing what what Facebook's putting out there in terms of their their blogs, that they had a series of maintenance errors uh, that that effectively um, you know broke broke their DNS, uh, making it difficult for um, their their sites to connect to the broader internet, which obviously had uh, impacts for all of their services from you know WhatsApp to Instagram uh, to Facebook Facebook itself, um, and you know obviously one of the things that uh, is kind of interesting is that that follows hard on the heels of a series of articles by the Wall Street Journal um, kind of looking at, at Facebook and, and kind of suggesting that uh, the way in which it was conducting business might be inappropriate in a variety of ways that I'm sure we're going to talk about uh, here today. But, but certainly that was the, the, the end of a, of a not very good uh, couple of weeks uh, for, for Facebook. Uh, and one of the things that I think is particularly interesting about this shutdown is, you know, from a cybersecurity perspective, is that a lot of the tools that, that they were using to kind of harden their networks and make sure that unauthorized users weren't able to use their networks actually contributed for how long uh, the network uh, was, was down. Um, so, you know, you had the network down for, for anything between five and seven hours. Um, and so that hardening uh, and cybersecurity tool toolkit that they were using actually made it more difficult for for them to kind of reset their network and get everything uh, back online. Um, so you know that's the that's the best case. Uh, sorry, that's the best explanation that we have for mm-hmm. for what went on there. But obviously, relying uh, you know a lot on on Facebook's own kind of explanation for what happened. Could you maybe um, go a bit into detail about what you meant by the fact that their own security system kind of um, created a backlash uh, of like on their own and how that happened? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, one of the things that's maybe interesting about Facebook is that they use their own systems to actually conduct business inside of the company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, of course, when you know the broader Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram went down, Facebook's internal systems also went down. I mean, I think the best way for Berkeley students to think about it is that, you know, a lot of our uh, productivity software runs on Google software, right? Your Gmail for your email, uh, Google Drive to collect all of your documents. It would be as if Berkeley owned Google, right? And Berkeley stopped working at the same time as all of your productivity software stopped working at the same time. 
Uh, and so obviously that made it very difficult for them to kind of pivot and fix things given that they no longer could communicate with one another uh, because they would obviously have a preference for doing IMs via Facebook Messenger mm -hmm. and that no longer worked. Um, and then on, you know, kind of unrelated to that set of problems, you actually have various uh, cybersecurity procedures in place to make it very difficult to be uh, an authorized user uh, in order to get inside of uh, the, the, the network servers that were ultimately doing the communicating between the World Wide Web and Facebook. Mm -hmm. uh, and it took them, again, you know, based on uh, their, 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 their own internal blog post kind of explaining the shutdown and the subsequent reporting from fake, uh, places like the New York Times, it took time for them to actually authenticate users absent the ability for them to use their internal network and systems. Uh, so, you know, what might have been, you know, an outage of only an hour or two hours was elongated by the fact that mm -hmm. there weren't ways to authorize uh, users to actually go in and do the resets necessary uh, to get them back online. Um, you know, of course, I think that one of the things that comes out of this episode for, for Facebook and other similar companies that, that really kind of rely on their own internal network are the importance of, you know, having backup systems uh, when you do have a situation where you have the internal and external system both go down. And so, you know, you already have discussions around drills and wargaming to get, get scenarios uh, set up such that, you know, executives and, you know, the engineers inside the company know exactly what to do when they're faced with a similar situation. Uh, of course, you know, inside of Facebook itself, there's claims that this is, you know, something of a black swan event, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, that, and that's fair enough, but I think that certainly when, you know, you have a situation like this, where you have external and internal servers going down at the same time, you know, that's something of a vulnerability that, that um, I'm sure they'll try to make sure it doesn't happen again, given that, you know, the deleterious consequences that we've seen, not only, you know, in the United States in terms of, you know, folks not being able to communicate, but actually across the globe where, you know, a lot of institutions and individuals rely on Facebook for conducting business, whether that's via WhatsApp or, you know, doing, you know, marketplace transactions uh, and what have you, uh, things like booking. I mean, I think that one of the things that's kind of difficult for, you know, a lot of Americans to understand is that in a lot of countries, you know, Facebook effectively is the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it going down is a very, very big deal. You know, it would be as if, you know, we had lost our ability to do Visa or Amex transactions. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think that, you know, that's something that's important to bear in mind. I think that's a very clear explanation of how it all went down, essentially. <laughs> and then um, just a theory or a rather conspiracy theory. Some say that Facebook uh, most likely shut down to, quote unquote, attack its users to, for instance, retrieve their data and their personal profiles. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think I think that it's it certainly wasn't at least in my perspective. It's not in Facebook's interest to okay. go down like this for all the reasons that I just said before, right? So if you if they've built an ecosystem, particularly outside of the United States, um, where you know they 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 are the web uh, and they are used to conduct business, it's not in their interest to go down for hours at a time and have their effectively customers pivot away to an alternative service. Um, so, 
you know, I, I think it, it's it's not likely given the kind of the reputational hit that they've already kind of hit, they've, they've received, um, and also the financial costs associated with the outage. I mean, I think one of the things that is really important to remember about Facebook and other social media companies is that effect, you know, they are a business, they are, they are making money. And whilst they're offline, they are not making money. And obviously, mm -hmm. you know, I think later on, we'll probably talk a little bit about what the business model of social media firms actually is. Um, but, you know, they're not, they're not receiving advertising revenue when the, when the network is down. And so, you know, I, I think that to some extent, the timing of the outage following a series of stories in the Wall Street Journal that kind of unpacked, um, you know, the, the way in which, you know, Facebook's manipulated its algorithm in order to try to get, you know, consumers or users to stay online longer mm -hmm. um, and, you know, how that might be, you know, a, a, a little bit a little bit troublesome from an ethical perspective or a normative perspective you know I think it's a case of kind of bad timing um, mm -hmm. although I will say that one of the things that it made very clear on the back of you know discussions around well should we get rid of social media companies altogether I mean I think that the the kind of the clamor uh, and attention that the Facebook shutdown received right suggests the degree to which it's become ubiquitous inside of the life of you know a lot of Americans and also the lives of, of a lot of uh, individuals across the globe and so you know I think that's something else that's kind of worth worth teasing out you mentioned this already but I want to go a bit in depth uh, into this so what do you think is exactly like the business model that those kind of social media employs and do you think it's if it's um, effective at all or do you think um, there can be improvements done and how do you think it relates to cybersecurity in a whole yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question set. I mean, one of the things that often gets lost is that, you know, ultimately Facebook are not forcing you to use them as a service, mm -hmm. and they're also not making you pay for their service. They are making money in other ways, and one of the ways that they're making money is via advertising revenue. They get more advertising revenue the more engagement they get on the site. Therefore, their interest is making you engage on the site more. And, of course, that's one of the things that kind of really kind of shone through in the Wall Street Journal story, uh, that, that, that dropped a couple of weeks ago where, you know, there was discussion around the, the algorithm being manipulated such that it spurred engagement and that engagement is actually most likely to come from making your users, uh, let's, let's say angry, um, <laughs> right, or, or passionate about a particular topic um, with, with obvious consequences. Right. So, so, you know, you're, they're getting users to stay on the system for longer, but it's by, uh, you know, having them engage in, you know, increasingly potentially political posts. Right. Or, or otherwise trying to kind of, um, you know, foment that engagement. And so I think it's really important for, for everybody to remember exactly what it is that, you know, all of these social media firms are trying to do. That is get you to be on their site for as long as possible. Um, and of course, I think there, there are a subset of Facebook employees, um, as evidenced by uh, Francis Haugen's um, uh, discussion in front of Congress, um, that, you know, view that change as being, you know, something that maybe wasn't necessary or, or that's inappropriate, um, you know, arguing that Facebook was far better being focused on kind of family and friends posts rather than news rather than kind of engaging in on politi you know, political Politics. topics of the day or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's, that's the thing that you really have to bear in mind is that ultimately, you know, there are other ways to organize social media companies, but the ones that have won out have been the ones that have not been pay to play, 
right, where you don't have to pay to be online um, and that have had this advertising oriented revenue stream. Um, and then, you know, it become, becomes a question of degree. Um, so, um, you know, ultimately Facebook has found itself in the in the content game insofar as it becomes an echo chamber for news. And so, you know, there's lots of discussion around the degree to which Facebook ought to be responsible for the material that's on their site or not. Mm -hmm. um, traditionally, social media sites have not been responsible for that material. Um, but, you know, there, there is some discussion about them having to have a little bit of a tighter handle on that, uh, particularly as it, as it comes to, um, you know, posts that might be, you know, inciting to violence, for example, or, or um, you know, illegal and, or inappropriate in other ways. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I think we can shift chairs very smoothly here because this is the Berkeley Political Review. And then we want to discuss some of the political aspects of this whole uh, shutdown situation. So maybe um, can this be so what you've said uh, that I found something that's interesting um, is the fact that uh, these kind of social media platforms, they do incite a lot of emotions um, inside people, for instance, like passion, anger, um, a lot along those lines. And then so do you think uh, this shutdown and um, the whole Facebook scheme can be actually related to, for instance, Trump's election or Brexit, uh, where Cambridge Analytica, they used personalized ads to make sure people vote for such individuals or vote for um, a preferred results that those political people on the top of the power hierarchy want? Yeah, so, you know, this is a really, really uh, tough question, Seth. For sure. I mean, they're... You know, there, there is a, a significant literature at this point that is exploring the degrees to which social media weakens democracy um, or potentially reflects democracy. I think that, you know, pro what's probably fair to say at, at this point is that, you know, clearly social media, like other forms of societal engagement, move the needle in terms of electoral outcomes. How much they do remains something of a question. So in 2016, the consensus appears to be, well, it might matter on the margins, but not a whole heck of a lot, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in 2020, I think we, we end up with kind of the, 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 the same, kind of, same kind of sense. I think where it becomes potentially problematic is that, you know, it's one thing for, you know, U.S. news sources to be debated amongst Americans on a social media site that have diametrically opposed viewpoints. I mean, there's plenty of anger in non-social media contexts as a variety of town, town halls of politicians demonstrate. Mm -hmm. um, I think what becomes more problematic and where things you know, do kind of cross over that line to things like weakening democracy, it's, it's the degree to which you know, foreign engagement on these social platforms that potentially manipulates voters is changing electoral outcomes and that's where you know you see a vehicle through which you have you know weakening of, of, of democracy if you will um, I, I will I will point out however that you know there's a long history of states embarking on what's called public diplomacy in order to do things like I mean maybe manipulate elections is, is too strong of a word or too strong of a phrase but you know they, they are trying to ultimately you know, make sure that the, the, the individuals that they view as being favorable towards their state are more likely to succeed. Um, and so, you know, this is not necessarily something new. I think you could make the argument something of the scale has shifted as, you know, now you have the ability to reach large numbers of Americans by virtue of the fact that they are all 
you know, on a single social network and also, you know, have managed to organize themselves such that it's very clear who the, you know, the, the you know, right-leaning individuals are on the social network versus the left-leaning individuals on the social network. Um, and, and, you know, there's been kind of that stratification, and so you can kind of do targeting that way. Um, and, but I do think it's the foreign interference that drives the, the lack of legitimacy and the weakening of good democracy rather than like the social media platform in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, insofar as it appears to be inspiring political debate that is more heated, right, and, and leading to anger, I mean, that's a, that's a problem for sure. But unfortunately, it reflects the political reality in which we find ourselves today. And so the degree to which, you know, social media is causal versus being a mirror, I mean, I think that's something of a debate. We kind of talked about how social media weakens democracy, and you mentioned how social media, another argument could be that social media actually promotes democracy. Could you maybe dive into that a bit, a little bit? Uh, I mean, sure. So, I mean, ultimately, it provides yet another space for political dialogue. So if one wanted to use social media as a space to engage with their constituents as a political leader, it's, it's a particularly useful tool. I mean, indeed, one of the things that the, the Obama campaign back in 2008 got a lot of credit for was using social media as a tool to engage voters and potentially increasing turnout, right? And so far as turnout is a, as a measure of, you know, democracy successness, right? That is, you know, that's potentially one of the, the ways in which you could see it being, you know, beneficial for society. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, whether social, social media is beneficial or not is really kind of a normative judgment um, rather than being like something substantively that we can kind of say like, okay, as a scholar, I have found that social media company is good or social media is bad. That's, that's not, you know, realistic. I think what we probably can say is that, you know, it's, it's probably not an appropriate vehicle through which the vast majority of an electorate should receive their news. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that we need to think really hard about what social media is is for. And, you know, I think one of the reasons that social media companies succeed is that ultimately, you know, it's not only you that's on that platform, it's your network that's on that platform. And you feel like if you left that platform, you would miss out on what your friends or your family are up to. that's one use. That's not the same thing as receiving your news from uh, from a social media company, right? Um, for the same reason that you probably shouldn't believe a blog post, right? You should probably also be a little bit skeptical as to what you know you're reading on a Facebook post. Um, and so, you know, I think that there is some scope for work to be done around how social media platforms engage with news mm-hmm. and and kind of what what they're using it for. And indeed, like I said, that shift in Facebook's algorithm that pushed more in a political direction towards the sharing and and reposting of news stories and kind of amplifying that in our news feeds was an intentional decision that that was taken by Facebook executives that moved them away from the family and friends posting. Uh, for the reason of getting us on Facebook, you know, more, um, or, or Instagram more. Um, and so, you know, I think that's probably where we can, you know, we can say, yeah, it's probably not a good source of news. But then again, you know, I say that to my undergraduate class, you know, don't use Facebook as, as your news source. And um, while they don't cite Facebook, I'm fairly sure that a lot of them are still using Facebook <laughs> as their news source. For sure. um, but, but give the BBC a read, um, among other sites as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but yeah, I think that's one space where we can say that's, uh, uh, you know, problematic. And just to follow up on that, um, there is this argument that people mm-hmm. tend to look for or reaffirm their 
uh, beliefs by looking for information that they already believe in. And Facebook kind of uses that algorithm to further push uh, for instance, advertisements or political mm-hmm. news um, to the users to make them reaffirm their beliefs even more. Hence, making well, uh, argument is that this makes people even more politically polarized. So, what do you think of that argument? Yeah, I mean, all the research suggests that what you're describing is happening. Um, so, you know, all the research suggests that you know we do have something of an echo chamber. Um, again, the degree to which it's entirely social media, either driven or reflected. Is, is a question mark, right? Like I can point you to um, news channels that are also echo chambers, MSNBC and Fox News on the, the two sides of the political spectrum. Um, and so, I mean, I think, again, it becomes a question the degree to which, you know, social media companies, among other sources of information, are driving these outcomes or reflecting a broader phenomenon in society. And I think that, unfortunately, the answer is the complex one, which is that it's both. Right? It's not as simple a story as to say, well, you know, social media companies are to blame for this polarization. I think, okay, sure, to some extent, but they're also a reflection of broader polarization um, as well. And, and, you know, I think there, a lot of the, the institutions that certainly you know, American society have relied on to harden itself against polarization have unfortunately been degraded over the past 50, 60 years. Um, you know, and that goes from everything from civics education to having, you know, a, a common experience of being an American sitting around the table watching the nightly news, right? Like that, that has, that has shifted. Um, and, and so, you know, social media is part of that story. It's not the whole story. Uh, but, but all the evidence, like I said, suggests that, you know, those, those echo chambers do exist on social media platforms and that effectively we like to engage with people that agree with us. Uh, and don't like to engage with people that disagree with us. <laughs> you mentioned how news channels can also be politically polarized and it reflects how um, our society views or receives information in a whole. So what do you think are, what are your suggestions um, as to how can people think more critically when receiving information and what are some of the more, well, relatively more reliable platforms that people can use? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, I think ultimately one of the problems is that a lot of the, you know, nobody is reading a news platform knowing or thinking that it's unreliable, Mm -hmm. right? They they, they have all, we have all constructed the reality in which our echo chamber is the right one. I mean, I'll I'll say the same thing that I say to my students, which is that you should at least be cross-referencing your your sources. So, you know, for example, if the BBC is saying the same thing as the Financial Times is saying the same things as the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, I can be fairly sure that there's something happening, right? They're all kind of coming at it in their different ways. Uh, you know, those of you that have picked up the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times know that they report stories differently. Um, but, you know, I think that's a, a, a kind of good way to kind of think about it. There's also, you know, a, a need to kind of understand that there's a distinction between reporting and commentary and the degree to which those have become conflated inside of American media is is maybe maybe a shade scary um and so you know i think there's a difference between you know understanding the the event right and understanding that there's somebody writing their opinion about the event um and so you know i I think that making sure that you're able to recognize when you're getting a, a columnist opining right there their kind of take on a particular uh scenario or event is happening versus pure reporting of 
of the news, if you will. Um, and, and indeed, one of the reasons that we have that is that, you know, for whatever reason, we tune in when people are talking commentary. Um, for those of you that are sports fans, that's first take, right? Like a lot of people watch the watch the, the talking afterwards, right, more than the game in some cases, right? And so something similar happens in the news where, you know, we're not watching for really understanding the events that are happening. We're watching for the commentary and the fighting that it comes alongside it. Um, and, and I think that's a really important thing to bear in mind. So, um, so yeah, so cross-referencing, you know, the sources, um, which of course I would say is an academic, uh, and, and also, you know, making sure that, that we understand the distinction between reporting on the one hand and commentary on the other. Would you say that the dramatic almost aspect that adds to the news reporting kind of makes it even more unreliable? And like, what do you think of um, the kind of non reporting uh, style of news um, that brings to people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically, we turn news into entertainment, um, which, you know, if you were to talk to a journalist or a reporter, 50 years ago, you would say is not the idea, right? The goal of news is to inform, not to entertain. Um, and, and we've kind of gone down, down an entirely different road. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to some extent, that speaks to the fact that ultimately, again, what's the business model? The business model is getting as many eyeballs as possible in that hour slot for the network to make as much money off of ads as possible. Therefore, it should be no surprise that there's entertainment. I think, you know, ultimately, I mean, one, one of the places that you could look for just pure reporting is the, the Reuters Newswire. That actually a lot of news firms use to actually come up with their stories. But if you were to just look at the Newswire, that's the purest sense of like, hey, look, this event is happening, right? Whether it's an oil spill, right? Or, um, you know, a, uh, a crime in New York City, right? Um, so, you know, that those wire services will give you like just the bare, bare reporting and that and that's what we'll, we'll see. But but yeah, I mean, that, that entertainment aspect of it um, is, is problematic. But ultimately, the only, the only places where we've seen a way to get around that is when you have, you know, basically broadcasting in the public service. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's the Berkeley Political Review, so you're probably all, you know, listening to, to PBS and listening to NPR, so I don't have to tell this all of you, right? But, but I think that's, that's the model through which you kind of get something a little bit different where it's not about you know, eyeballs on screens for as long as possible, right? It's actually reporting the public interest. And of course, you know, Britain's got a version of that via the BBC as well. Um, the degree to which that becomes hand in glove with the government, however, is, you know, becomes problematic potentially. Uh, again, it really kind of depends on how you think about the relationship between media uh, and, and government and what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. Um, you know, there's certainly situations where you know, you have news companies that effectively become a propaganda arm of a government, and that's not appropriate either. And no. so, you know, I think that, you know, certainly our version of it appears to not be working terribly well in terms of turning all news into entertainment, uh, but you also don't want the, the, the inverse uh, either, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that insight. And just to zoom out a little bit uh, and talk about the cybersecurity aspect of Facebook shutdown, because you are an expert, you know, in the information school. Um, so can you please give us the definition, maybe, of cybercrime, espionage, and the disruption of, of essential services, and maybe some of the other uh, concepts that you think are important regarding cybersecurity? Yeah, this is actually good timing, because I just led my class on cyber espionage oh, yesterday. Um, <laughs> so, so I think that the, the important thing is to think about um, the, the question of who is serviced by each phenomenon, 
and then what each phenomenon looks like. So on the former, for cybercrime, you're talking about undertaking a cyber attack for uh, monetary benefit for the individual carrying out that crime, generally speaking. For cyber espionage, you're trying to you know, carry out a cyber attack to the benefit politically of the actor uh, that, uh, that's undertaking the attack. And that's a really important distinction. You don't have states running around carrying out cyber crimes, North Korea potentially accepted. <laughs> um, right? They're not running around you know, doing things for monetary gain in most cases. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, they're interested in garnering information about um, you know, government capabilities, military capabilities, um, what government actions might be coming down the pipe, um, you know, trying to understand like the, the political uh, milieu within which decisions take place inside that state. Uh, that's why you're engaging in, in, in espionage. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of you know, what they actually end up looking like, um, we, often, we often kind of talk about cyber attacks uh, as they pertain to what we call the CIA triad. So uh, the C is confidentiality, the I is integrity, and the A is availability. And so what cyber, uh, cyber espionage is doing is it's influencing the confidentiality. So it's taking information right, and sharing it beyond the authorized user. Generally speaking, cyber espionage does not change data, right? It doesn't make, doesn't influence the integrity of data, um, although it can unintentionally. And it also doesn't impact the availability of that data to the authorized user. Again, with exceptions where you have, you know, the kind of unintentional consequences. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's really what you're trying to do with espionage. With cybercrime, right, you are, you're potentially impacting all of those things, right? Um, you're, you're certainly, you know, you're picking up information that's confidential. You're probably also influencing the availability of it. Um, and, and ultimately, right, you're trying to benefit monetarily from, mm-hmm. from that attack. Um, so the way in which it kind of, you know, engages with the CIA triad is also uh, slightly different across both. I think where the two maybe come together somewhat is around questions of commercial espionage. Um, so, you know, where you have countries undertaking cyber attacks in order to try to, you know, do things like, you know, understand terrorist financing flows, which maybe is a legitimate, quote unquote, use of commercial or espionage tools, um, or alternatively undertake IP theft on behalf of their, you know, national champion companies, Mm -hmm. uh, which is maybe a quote unquote, illegitimate form of commercial espionage. Um, And so, you know, I think, you know, ultimately what happens out there in the real world is that we have both of these things happening, right? We've got cyber criminals um, engaging in things like, you know, uh, uh, the you know the well let's pick let's pick one uh, ransomware attacks right uh, and trying to you know shut down systems you know colonial pipeline serves as the most recent example right um, and in trying to you know get usually cryptocurrency in return for providing people you know uh, access back to back to uh, their um, their systems you also have you also do have cyber espionage as part of the broader kind of espionage toolkit of states. Of course, what's interesting about that is that, you know, there are good arguments that political forms of espionage could potentially actually be stabilizing insofar as, you know, if I know a little bit more about my adversary, 
I might be more less likely to jump to conclusions as to them being potentially escalatory or, mm-hmm. or, or trying to, you know, I might actually have a deeper understanding of what it is that makes them tick that might actually make things more likely to be stable than be unstable. Um, and indeed, you know, to some extent, there's tacit approval among states that some amount of espionage is happening and is inappropriate, and is appropriate. Um, see James Bond, for example, A. Um, so, so yeah, I think these are really important concepts, and I think it's worth trying to think about, you know, keeping them as separate as possible. Um, of course, however, like I said, with, with the North Korean case, like, there are exceptions that, that prove the rule. Uh, but generally speaking, they, they, are, they are separate. And so which category would the Facebook shutdown fall into? Um, I, I would say neither. Accident, right? Um, that, that's definitely in the, in the cyber accident. There's no malevolent actor, right, who's mm-hmm. gone in and shut down Facebook's, um, you know, Facebook servers or DNS system. Um, so, you know, I think that, that, that falls very squarely in the kind of the, the cyber accidents, if you, if you want to put it, put it in that box. And um, so this is obviously a non-governmental network, but can you maybe tell us how the government networks function versus how non-governmental networks function and how are they secured? Yeah, I mean, it really, it, it, do, it does vary uh, a great deal mm-hmm. based on, um, based on, you know, what the function of the government agency is and also what the, you know, uh, the private firm's trying to do. I mean, again, one of the things that made the Facebook outage interesting was that you had it using the same system for both external and internal networking. So it went down and then they were hosed. For most companies, that's not the case. That's not the case, right? For a lot of companies, they're using Slack and Google Suite and Workday and Salesforce. And so, if one of those goes down, don't worry about it. We've got other things to do, right? But for for you know for whatever reason, the way that Facebook organized itself, uh, it had that it had that particular problem set. Uh, but of course, they're they're doing things ultimately um, to try to make sure that. You know they're maintaining that confidentiality, integrity, and availability of proprietary data and personal identifying information at all times. That's connected to you know whatever their their company's trying to do, mm-hmm. um, and that can look like any number of things that they might do. So I think it's you know fair to say that at this point, pretty much everybody is doing multi-factor authentication, yep. right? Um, so you know we're all getting pinged on our phones and fingerprinted, and you know face ID'd in order to get access to our emails. Um, and it's annoying, but it's necessary, I promise. Have MFA on everything, okay? Uh, and use different passwords for everything. Um, and then, on, on, you know, in addition, you also have a lot of companies that use continuous monitoring tools, also called Zero Trust, um, where you know, they'll effectively authenticate behavior at all times. They'll be tracking what people are doing on their government, on the uh, private firm's network, you know, making sure that they're not doing anything weird. So, you know, for example, you know, what are the applications that Michelle has open? Is there anything that she has open on her machine that's weird today? Like, you know, why is she, you know, looking at this particular website that's outside of her normal workflow, right? Those are the types of things that you might be doing on, on your network to try to maintain, uh, maintain that security and, and effectively make sure that Michelle is always Michelle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's what we're interested in doing. And that's the same, you know, on, on government and government networks as well. Um, I think one of the things that I'll, I'll probably say here, just, just for lack of somewhere else to say it, is that, you know, in reality, we don't in America have uh, an onerous regulatory system to kind of adjudicate the ways in which networks ought to be protected, right? We, we have voluntary standards 
that companies either implement or don't um, that, you know, are attempting to make themselves, you know, as cyber secure as possible. Um, there's a wide variation in, you know, states uh, in, a, in a firm's sophistication vis-a-vis -vis their, their cybersecurity, if you will, mm -hmm. um, and, and how they go about, you know, cloud security or, you know, authentication of, of, uh, of, of, of users on their network. Um, and, you know, there, there's, there's been a variety of efforts to try to, you know, put regulatory standards inside that space. A lot of those regulatory standards have been shot down. Um, not least because firms don't want them, right? Uh, they view regulatory frameworks as being onerous, um, as being likely to, you know, uh, make, make innovation less likely to occur, et cetera. And so they've lobbied for a hands-off approach. Um, this might be changing somewhat. So, you know, we have uh, draft legislation in, in Congress that's kind of looking at, you know, the various requirements for private firms to disclose, and government agencies actually, uh, to disclose when they've actually been attacked. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds as if that's going to end up being something like 48 hours or 72 hours um, that they have as a window to actually report to the government that they have been uh, the, the subject of a cyber attack. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, hopefully that information sharing regime might allow other firms to protect themselves against that same breach right. so that you don't have the same thing happening to one firm after another. I mean, currently, these information sharing kind of regimes happen on a voluntary basis and often rely a lot on personal networks. So, you know, you have, you know, CISOs or, or, or CIOs calling one another, right, and saying, hey, we had this breach in our network, you should really harden yourself against this particular uh, type of attack or patch your system to make sure that you're, you know, at this version of Microsoft Word or this version of uh, of Mac OS or, or, what, or what have you, uh, to make sure that you're, you're, you know, you're safe from this type of breach. Um, and so, you know, it, it, this, this, this may be changing, but, you know, ultimately, you know, a lot of, a, a lot of firms have a, a lot of freedom and leeway in how they kind of set up their architecture to try to be as secure as possible. And then, of course, you have firms who, you know, maybe aren't in the IT space, and aren't very sophisticated when it comes to cybersecurity or don't have the resources to be cybersecure. And so that's something that, you know, various, you know, parts of campus here at Berkeley are trying to remedy, right? Whether it's the, you know, Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity and the Citizen Clinic trying to, you know, work with NGOs to actually provide cybersecurity services to try to make them as hardened as possible, right? Um, because they don't have those resources uh, and ways to implement best practices. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's lots of work to be done in this space, but to some extent, this contributes to the overall kind of, you know, workforce or talent gap that we have around cybersecurity that, you know, is estimated to be between 400,000 individuals all the way up to a million people. Wow. So, you know, if you're looking for a job after you're done with your degree, you know, there's one for you in cybersecurity, that's for, that's for sure. <laughs> um, you know, and so, you know, I, I think in reality, the, the tools are constantly changing, the types of threats that we face are changing, the vulnerabilities that we have to address are changing, uh, the consequences are potentially, potentially becoming more dire. Um, I think before you had mentioned, uh, you know, critical infrastructure and, and, and how, you know, that might be problematic. I mean, ultimately, a lot of our essential services rely on IT, uh, internet Indeed. technology, 
and that's true for our water, that's true for our electricity grid, um, and, and arguably we're becoming more reliant upon IT. And IT, of course, gives us a lot of efficiency gains, right? There's a reason that we all seem to like having Alexas in our houses and you know robot vacuums, etc. Um, but it doesn't come without a risk. I mean, it is the case that you know we can hack smart fridges, right? Right. Um, so you know, I think that. You know, you have to think really seriously about the attack surface. And one of the things that, you know, certainly I worry a lot about in my research is this critical infrastructure issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the, you know, the, 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 the lack of kind of best practices in actually making sure that our critical infrastructure is secure. And we've seen a variety of examples where we've had, um, you know, not state actor action against American critical infrastructure. Um, there was a recent attack in Florida. Uh, attack in New York on, on dams, for example, you know, neither of which ended up being, you know, all that significant, uh, but you can, you know, just imagine, you know, the, the, the types of problems that we could find ourselves in if somebody was actually, you know, be serious about attacking that type of infrastructure. Um, and indeed, we, we have this discussion around election security as well. Um, so, you know, a lot of discussion around uh, the various vulnerabilities associated with uh, vote counting, uh, and, and actually voting machines as well in those states where they don't have paper ballots. Um, you know, and right now, to some extent, we've been saved by the fact that a lot of different counties around the country use entirely different voting machines mm-hmm. from you know, Dominion or ESNS. But ultimately, you know, it, it, it is the case that as soon as you're relying on um, you know, even, even air gap systems in that case, um, you know, as soon as you're relying on electronic systems, you have something of a, uh, of, a, of a problem. And so that's led to a lot of movement towards trying to have paper ballot backups, etc. Um, but, you know, the, the internet revolution has come and gone, um, and I don't think we're going to go back to an analog world. So no. we, have to, we have to learn to, to live with this reality that, that we've, we've built. And so, um, so, yeah. We kind of touched upon how national and local skilled um, insurance of uh, cybersecurity can be like be in place. Um, what are some of the international cyber protection strategies that have been employed, if any? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, so we, we do have quite a lot of international coordination of, you know, uh, attempts to mitigate cyber attacks. I mean, the Colonial Pipeline hack was carried out by a ransomware group called Revel. Um, and actually, just in the last couple of days, they've been shut down by a multi-country coalition um, on the American side led by uh, the FBI, uh, Cybercom, and the Secret Service, right, but with international partners. And so, you know, you see significant efforts on the part of institutions like Interpol and mm-hmm. Europol on the kind of the law, law enforcement end uh, to, you know, kind of deal with cybercrime. Uh, with regards to cyber espionage, I think there's a much broader discussion occurring um, primarily in Geneva uh, amongst states as, as part of kind of two parallel processes because Russia and China and the U.S. can't agree on, on much in no. this space um, around, you know, cyber norms and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Um, you know, for example, I mentioned commercial espionage earlier uh, and particularly the IP theft carried out by a state actor in order to benefit its own companies. And so those types of attacks were subject to discussions between uh, President Obama and President Xi in 2015 uh, in San Francisco, so local to here. Um, and 
basically in that meeting, the two of them agreed that those types of uh, cyber espionage were inappropriate. Uh, and by all accounts, you know, if you look at the information that was collected by cybersecurity consulting firms, um, it suggested that actually upon signing that agreement, uh, the um, number of cyber attacks that emanating from China on American firms with the goal of IP, IP theft uh, dropped by a factor of three. Oh, they wow. didn't stop altogether, but they, they dropped significantly since they've, they've ticked slowly back up again. Um, but you know, I think that those are the types of discussions that are being that are taking place at a multilateral level. Um, you know, I, I I'm a scholar of arms control. You know, I, I I'm a little bit skeptical as to whether there's a vehicle through which we could have an arms control regime for cyber capabilities. It's not impossible, but I think it would certainly you know change the way that we think about arms control conventionally. Um, but uh, but yeah, you see various parts of you know the the international solution set to, to these to these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. Oh, I mean, I think one of the other things that I should probably should mention here as well is that you know when it comes the re- the reason that you need international level solutions is that the internet, at least currently, uh, is an international utility, with some you know discussions on the margins about the Great Firewall and China's version of the network versus right. Russia's version of the network. Um, and, and states taking a little bit of more control. But there is this fundamental tension about you know, what the internet has come from, right? which is a US experiment, <laughs> right? DARPA is, is, is ultimately to be credited for the, you know, the birth of the internet. So where it's come from, what it was supposed to be as you know, a place where you could have anonymous engagement on things like message boards and instant communications across the globe, right? The the kind of the the engineers or computer scientists paradise uh, kind of version of the internet versus kind of what it's become, which is you know a vehicle for effectively us to carry out our economic lives, our political lives, right? And and to and to engage with one another, and whether the internet's architecture needs to shift given those kind of dueling visions for what the internet ought to be. And, and indeed, you know, even when you look at things like uh, the Tor browser that allow for you know, fairly non-attributable uh, activity on, on the web, you know, from, to one extent, that's viewed as being a very positive, uh, very positive contribution to, uh, to, to you know our technology set. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you talk to a journalist, uh, particularly particularly in a state where you know journalists might not have a lot of the freedoms that uh, that, they, that they might hear, you know, Tor is is literally the vehicle through which they're able to do what they view to be their job. So right. you know, it, it, it's essential. But on the flip side, Tor is also used as one of the primary tools for cyber criminals to hide themselves online, right, and engage in the various things that we call the dark web. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think that it's that what we want the Internet to be is going to be a debate. And again, there's not really a right answer here. Um, you know, we're probably always going to kind of struggle with those dueling visions. Um, but 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 ultimately, you know, that's something that, that, that we all get to decide as, as a society uh, moving forward. I feel like this discussion could go on forever. But uh, just to wrap it up, what do you think? Um, 
the Facebook shutdown can tell us about cybersecurity and what do you think uh, of you know cybersecurity moving forward? What's the scene going to be like? Yeah, I mean, I think I think unfortunately for Facebook, the October fourth shutdown, you know, demonstrated the you know the the risks associated with the very mundane uh, types of uh, you know cybersecurity problems, right, or or uh, network problems, and, and the significant consequences that can follow. Uh, and again, not necessarily for those of us that kind of missed out on messaging or grandparents. But really, for you know, for for those around the globe that really rely on those services to do all of their communication, their economic transactions, uh, etc., and and ultimately, you know, whether you know coming stemming from malevolent action on the part of you know a cyber criminal gang um, or from a nation state actor or an accident like it was in this case, you know, the the, the outputs are the same, right? The outputs are disruption to services that have become ubiquitous and essential for the way that we lead our daily life. Um, and so I think that's, you know, ultimately, we, we've all got to kind of think about ways in which our, our kind of our lives are interwoven with these technologies and, and the degree to which we can kind of think about fail safes to be able to engage without them. I know that, uh, you know, certainly the businesses that rely on Facebook, they're probably having those discussions right now as to, you know, how they could have maintained uh, operating mm-hmm. given that reality um, but yeah it's it's this is a you know a really like I said a really pressing problem set and you know I don't think we can end up you know pushing enough people in the direction of really taking these issues seriously and you know thank you for the opportunity for for letting me share my perspective on on you know on these events and you know I hope you'll all continue to engage I'm on campus so feel free to give me a ping via email I'm pretty sure I'm searchable um, so um, so yeah look forward to it